I'm going to present a model of Austrian economics, and I also like this to call this project, sometimes I like to call it Dynamic Stochastic General Disequilibrium. And um, this title suggests that um, the goal of this project is to, to come up with a framework which is probably just as general as the models that are used in mainstream economics. But in addition, we would like to incorporate some of the Austrian insights into such a framework. In order to do so, we have to leave the concept of equilibrium, um, as I will argue in a second. And, and then the idea is to have such a model and to, to actually track the patterns that we expect over the business cycle into the system of national accounts, that is GDP and all its subcomponents. Now, how could such a model possibly work? No, that's not it. Um, first of all, um, the model is agent-based and accounting-based. That is to say, there are many types of agents and they act in a completely decentralized fashion on virtual markets where they exchange money against goods and services. And every agent has a balance sheet. And this balance sheet records his economic status at all times. And then we can simply aggregate those balance sheets and reach some macroeconomic status where we can then basically read out what would this mean to GDP. The model is also behavioral in the sense that these, act these agents, they have certain goals. That is, they, they satisfy preferences or they maximize profits, and they use algorithms to do this. They're not maximizing utility or something like that because that doesn't exist here, um, but they use some kind of procedural rationality and like very simple algorithms to achieve their goals. And all of this is implemented in a Java language. It's like an object-oriented language where we can, can like simulate the outcomes of such a model. Um, I talked about markets, and this is the core or the key to understanding this model. The markets, the way I've designed them is, is as follows. Um, a market can be populated by many, many firms, and each of those firms would have a certain quantity on offer, and it sets a price. So the individual supply curve of each firm would be simply a horizontal line. And if we then add them up or aggregate them, we would get something like an upward-sloping supply curve. But this is not a Marshallian supply curve. It's simply something which shows us the price spectrum at which some total quantity would be available in a market. And then, on the demand side of the market, there would be some demanders. They enter the market, and um, they have limited information. They don't know this entire supply curve, but they randomly select three offers, then they choose the one with the cheapest price, and then they compare this price with their reservation demand or their reservation price. The reservation price, again, is behavioral. I'll get to this in a second. But um, this is what they do. They compare their, their willingness to pay with what they have in the market, And if this is okay, then, then they make a purchase. And then what happens? What happens is that the market is updated, right? Because one unit of the good has been sold now, the supply curve is actually shortened. And the system reaches a new plain state of rest, to put it in Misesian terms. And this, like, step by step, the model goes, like, into the future. 
And there are markets for basically everything that circulates in this economy. Um, first of all, in every market transaction, money is, against, is exchanged against a good or service. And so we set, strictly separate between the monetary level and the real level of the economy. And then we can see simply there's a market for consumer goods and for labor and for capital goods and for equity shares and for credit, that is future money. And um, this is the, these are the balance sheets of the, of the agents, like in a representative um, way. And yeah, we can see here that all the money is basically held by the banks. So this is like a gold standard, basically. And then they, they have like the, the firms and the households, so they have checking accounts. And whenever they buy something, they, they transfer money from one checking account to another. So it's like they, they act with money substitutes, basically. And then there are, in addition, there are time deposits, which can be um, converted into loans, and then they, they can be used to, to uh, purchase capital. And um, all of this is, is, um, follows like basic accounting standards. And um, so at each point in time, we have like a full-fledged accounting system. Um, now, what about the real side of the economy? Um, it's modeled as follows. Um, here we have a grid, and there are different stages of production. Right? And then we also have different lines of production in the horizontal direction. And um, this is like a playground for the firms. The firms can still be settled at one of those nodes, and whenever a firm is settling here, then it can start to produce this good, which is here. This is like, would be like F3. And another firm would settle here, and then it would produce the good D2. So they're just different goods in the economy. And if there's no firm, then the good is not going to be produced. And now say a firm is here at C2, then it can only use certain production factors as inputs. Um, that is to say, it can use intermediate goods of the next higher stage, and it can use machines. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Here we have machines which are like fixed capital goods, and it can use fixed capital goods from its own stage. And it has to use labor. Labor needs to be used in any type of production process. So that is just to say that production factors are complementary. You cannot assemble products in a completely arbitrary fashion. And furthermore, there's a production function, which um, is basically a Leontief-type production function. This simply describes the numerical relationship between inputs and outputs. Yeah? So I use one worker to produce one good, for example, or something like that. <coughs> And it's a bit more complicated than that, but I spare you the details. It's, there's a production, a processing capacity, like how many intermediate goods can a firm actually process per time period, and that depends on how much labor and how much capital has it accumulated and all that. In essence, it is a production function which rewards the accumulation of capital, the division of labor, and which most importantly follows the law of returns as stated by Mises. And it has constant returns to scale, just as in other mainstream economics. Or may, yeah. Okay, let's get to the behavioral section of it. Um, these are the household preferences. And I model them simply as sequences of intended actions. Yeah? Um, that is to say, a household might go about and say, okay, I have an, each household has an order in which he desires to purchase goods. So he starts out and say, I want to buy one unit of good B, and then he starts out, he wants another unit of good B, and maybe a unit of good A, and later a savings contract. And in each 
of these actions, he has a, res um, a reservation expenditure. And this reservation expenditure, or a reservation price, is or describes the law of diminishing marginal utility. Yeah? You could say that the reservation expenditure of each household is defined by his money holdings minus his money demand in each transaction. And the money demand, in turn, is a function of the numbers of the units of the good in question that he already owns. And the higher, this is monotonically increasing. So the higher this number, um, the lower is his willingness to pay for another unit of that good. And that's it. That's basically, that's basically um, the, the law of diminishing marginal utility. Um, in addition, they also have pre-income preferences, so they have to decide, am I going to work in this time period or not? And um, this decision reflects the trade-off that they face between leisure time and real consumption. Now, in order to estimate the real consumption that they will have in the next time period, they first need an estimate of the purchasing power of money, uh, because they only know the money that they have in their pockets. And um, how do they do that? Well, they look at what they spent, what they, what they consumed in the last time period. This is the real consumption in the last time period. And divide this by what they spent on this, on this consumption. And then this gets them an estimate of the purchasing power of money. And then they multiply this with their current money holdings. And this is what they get as their expected real consumption if abstaining from work. And then this enters the reservation wage function. Okay, and again, this is monotonically increasing. So the higher the expected real consumption, the less they're inclined to work. And as a side note, this is obviously an adaption of the regression theorem that, that I've just shown here. Now, the firms, what do they do? I'm, I'm not going into all algorithms that I've developed, but what, how do the firms determine price and quantity? What they do is... Um, First of all, the sales strategy of firms is only about revenue maximization, maximization because investment always precedes sales, and so all these costs are sunk costs, doesn't matter. So it's only about revenue. And, um, but they don't know the revenue maximizing, uh, re revenue maximizing combination of quantity and price, and they use, therefore, a process of try and error. And what they do, they have limited information there. It's an environment of radical uncertainty, so they only monitor their own balance sheet. Their inventories, but they did not sell. And they always try to withhold a certain quantity from the market. So if, in particular, they have a target range of inventories, yeah, which is proportional to the quantity that they offer. And whenever um, they sell too much, then they raise the price. Whenever they sell too little, then they lower the price. Yeah? And, and that's, that's here, this, like this. In addition... If they sell too much with respect to their target and they were able to produce as much as they wanted, so they're not investment constraint, then they also raise the, offer, the offered offering target. And if the sales are low and there were still also investment constraint, then they lower the offering target. So this is like a, a process of try and error, like where do we end up in the market? Yeah? And there are many firms who do this and they're competing with each other. Finally, investment, well, that's actually quite easy. What they do is they go to the market, they look at all possible capital, com capital combinations that they could use, and they calculate the unit costs. 
And they know the unit cost because they know the production function and they know the prices that they find in the market. And that's the unit cost. And whenever this is sufficiently low below their sales price, then they make the investment because they, may, they expect to earn a profit. Finally, there's bankruptcy. I'm not going into the details of that, but um, this simply means that if they cannot pay their debt, then they go bankrupt, and then new firms are being created, and this gives the system some flexibility to changing conditions. Here is like, simply how can we imagine this. And we can imagine the demand by some kind of imaginary demand curve, which... Yeah, it's probably a bit more complex than that. And here is the unit cost curve. And what happens now in the system when it's interdependent is that um, the prices, they will converge in some way. If there's monopoly, okay, then okay, it can always withhold quantity from the market and, and they, it will raise prices above unit costs. Um, but say there's competition, then there can be two situations. Either the prices are competed down to the cost level, and that, is, that will be the case um, whenever the production factors are abundant, or the prices of the, the production factors are actually bid up some to where the price level is, and that will be the case when, it, when the production factors are scarce. Yeah? And so here we have some interdependency, and um, this is how it works. Um, these are two possible capital combinations um, of a, or capital resource allocations of uh, an economy. So here we have these, uh, a line of production, and this economy works with, four, with uh, 14 workers. We have nine here, three, one, three here, one, one. And money, or the goods that they produce are indicated in red, they go in this direction, and the money goes in the other direction. And then we have dividends and wages going back to the households. Yeah, okay. Um, and here we have a different capital configuration, which is more capital intensive. Yeah, we have more workers at the higher stages of production. Now, how can this... Is this possible? Yes, it is. But in order to, to become more capital intensive, they need machines up here because otherwise they could not process all the goods that now arrive up here. There are much more goods arriving here now. And so we have all together, we have a more roundabout production structure here, which is characterized by higher capital intensity, higher division of labor, a more complex assembling of goods. And how can we get from A to B? I mean, that's the critical question. And the answer is only by savings. Because... Um, these companies down here, they have very little revenue. Yeah? They only get 24 monetary units as revenue, and they could never even afford an additional worker. So they can only expend if they have credit. Yeah? So from A to B, we only get by, by savings. And the question is, can we show that? Yes, we can. Um, I show you this. And that this is how the model then will end. Oh, this is just like um, a very simple version of it. But this is how it looks. Okay? Um, you can run this and it will be running on a website. Yeah? So it, it's, it's possible to, to illustrate this and 
to track all the components of an economy. We can look at nominal consumption, real consumption. We can look at the labor market, at the price levels, and so on and so on. We can look here at the allocation. And now this is a very simple economy, right? There's only one consumer good. This is here B1. There's one intermediate good and one machine. Yeah, very simple. But we see that firms... Okay, the, this computer is a bit slow, so I have to pause it that we can see the full picture. Um, the firms are settling here at these nodes and they're trading in these goods and then they, they produce goods and, and so on. Yeah. Converges quite slowly. That is caveat. But um, you can like, track over time what, what happens with these, um, um, with these quantities. And um, in 2000, well, it's a bit slow. In 2040, there will be a shock, and then the production, function, uh, production structure is expanded, and we will see that um, then real consumption will actually rise. Let's go back to the talk because I'm running off the time. I'll show you how the result of this later. Now, in essence, every spending pattern by the household sustains a certain production structure. And when this spending pattern changes, the preferences change, for instance, then we can, we can show how the capital structure follows. So we have the principle of consumer sovereignty implemented here. And um, when there's an increase in savings, we have a lengthening of the production structure, which will eventually lead to higher output. And um, if there's credit expansion, then we don't have, we have basically the same consumption pattern, but we have more money coming from the side, basically, like being simply provided to firms. And then this will also, in, like, lengthen the production, production structure, and it will raise our output for a while, but as we know, it will all come to an end. And subsequently, finally, when, when this credit expansion ceases or when the money is being more equally, equally distributed, then um, we have a breakdown. That's it. And the good thing is that we can, we can track this. We can see how the, like the macroeconomic magnitudes are actually um, reflect such a cycle. Yeah? And we can show, we can look at the patterns, the macroeconomic patterns that, that would... Um, would show up in such a cycle. To, to, uh, to close this, um, this is just a comparison between what other economists do and what we have in this model here. And I think this list could even be extended. And um, I'm just saying that, as I said, we, we break with many of the metaphors that are actually usually being put forward. And um, we replace this by some new metaphors but I think they're more realistic and they're more in line with Austrian economics. So I paused this here. Yeah? And you can see there was a shock in 2040. The structure is now lengthened. And real consumption has gone up. Thank you. <laughs>